I, I hoped that people would see us as very relatable. Given hard work, you know, I could see myself doing something like that. A roundtable discussion on women in STEM. This week on Upvoted by Reddit. Welcome to episode five of Upvoted by Reddit. I'm your host, Alexis Ohanian. And last week's episode was the amazing story of Jordan Exani. It is not to be missed. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, it's not often that seizing on life's quirks can create such an enormous opportunity. And who would have thought that he would have found so many Elizabeth Gallagher's in the world to share that round-the-world ticket. But what's even more interesting is that his first brush of notoriety didn't just lead him to better himself. It led him to better others. And last week, I announced that I would be donating $1,000 to help someone on his website, a ticket forward. That's a ticketforward.org. Have a trip of a lifetime. And his nonprofit is all about that, helping people experience these kinds of once in a lifetime journeys that travel can provide, especially if they can't afford it. So I went in and looked at all the comments on the R upvoted post about episode four. And I couldn't make up my mind, frankly. I, I couldn't. And in hindsight, I kind of felt bad that I was asking people to choose one person over another. There are four people featured on a ticketforward.org. They all have really remarkable stories, which you should take a look at. And I decided, you know what? It's not really fair for me to try to choose just one. So instead, I'm just going to split it up. I'm going to give $250, my mental math is right, to each of these four people on a ticketforward.org, Carrie, Glenda, Nikisha, and Saida. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You're each going to get the $250. I'm going to make that donation as soon as I'm done recording this episode. And I hope you all join me. And I hope we will get to hear from, in, in some way, shape, or form, how these trips change their lives. You know, we've been discussing Jordan's story and all of our other previous episodes on the r slash upvoted subreddit. So get over there. Uh, we're also looking for your feedback. All of those helpful suggestions and feedback that everyone has given us has gone into making this podcast better with every episode. I really believe it. And that's because of you. So thank you. We really take all of your comments into account and I, I hope it shows. If you haven't given us your two cents, come on over, join the conversations on r slash upvoted. For this episode, we're going to try something a little different. Many of you have asked for a longer show and even a cut that feels more like a traditional interview. So we decided to try something out. This week's guest caught my attention when they did an AMA two months ago entitled, We're Three Female Computer Scientists at MIT, here to answer your questions about programming and academia. It was a great interview. And fortunately, I was not the only one who felt that way. This AMA had almost 5,000 comments. Today we're joined by the participants of that AMA, Elena Glassman, Jean Yang, and Neha Narula. There is going to be a lot to cover like diversity in STEM, the future of academia, and whether we should really fear our future robot overlords. But before we get into that discussion, let's cue up some smooth jazz and take a second to talk about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. They're the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace designs are extremely user-friendly. The drag-and-drop templates are easy to use, and they have everything you could ever need. You can start with a free trial at squarespace.com with no credit card required. Once you've given it a test drive and decided you'd like to purchase a plan, you can get 10% off with the offer code UPVOTED at checkout. That's squarespace.com, offer code U-P-V-O-T-E-D. This episode is also brought to you by NatureBox. NatureBox is a terrific subscription service that sends you great tasting snacks right to your door. NatureBox is great for the home, office, or anyone on the go. They sent me a box to check out, and I love cashews. Their sriracha roasted cashews are really good. Really, they're spicy. I like them. You can get your first NatureBox for free right now at naturebox.com slash upvoted. Try it out. Let us know what you think. That's naturebox, N-A-T-U-R-E-B-O-X dot com slash upvoted. U-P-V-O-T-E-D. And we are back. I'm Jean. I am a final year PhD student at MIT. I came here to do my PhD in computer science right after doing my undergrad at Harvard, also in computer science. And I work on programming languages, which means that I spend my time thinking about 
how to design programming languages and tools to help people write the programs that they intended to write. My name is Neha, and uh, I'm also a final year PhD student. I came here after working as a software engineer at Google for a few years. Um, I work in this area called systems, and I work on uh, distributed databases in particular. And so the things I'm really interested in, the things I focused on in my research, have been how to build correct, scalable, highly performant systems. Um, and just as an aside, systems is is notorious as one of the areas of computer science with the fewest women. I think programming languages is too. Jeans yeah, our, our conferences, I mean, you can count the number of women on, on your hands, maybe yeah. one hand. And I'm Elena. Um, I am on the other side of CS in human-computer interaction. I did my undergrad here at MIT in electrical engineering. And then um, I spent uh, about six years doing biomimetic robotics and then found uh, and fell in love with creating systems to help teachers teach students um, how to program better when you've got thousands of students rather than just 30. Thank you so much, uh, all three of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's three thank yous, one for each of you uh, for, for taking the time out to do this. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's our yeah. pleasure. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's very exciting. You know, I was so, so enamored with the AMA you all did about a month ago. And, and I'm curious, just to sort of get it started, um, why did you choose to do your PhDs at a safety school like MIT? Why didn't you push yourselves? <laughs> my dad didn't want me to come here. He was like, <laughs> mine either. Really? Wait, seriously? Yeah, my no, parents were thrilled. Well, <laughs> yeah, MIT. Okay, no, I, I should clarify. My, my dad's an electrical engineer. Your your mom is also a computer scientist. Both my parents. Um, but uh, my dad, I think, was afraid that you know I had been doing computer science on my own terms as something that was fun. Um, and kind of like uh, just empowering when I was in high school. And he was afraid that if I went to MIT, where it was then shoved down my throat, that I would um, that I would kind of fall out of love with it. Um, I don't think that that has happened, thank goodness. Yeah, for me, I mean, the I think my parents and their friends had this notion of MIT being this really intense, competitive place where people, you know, they, they were very stereotypical scientists. And then there was some gendered, uh, there's a gendered component to this where they thought, you know, your daughters should be not so intense and not so competitive and a lot of these other things. And, and I think part of it was they were afraid that, you know, there would, it would just be too, too much for me. And part of it was they would, they were afraid I would become something like they wouldn't want their daughter to be. But I think for me, I fell in love with MIT when I visited. So I, I had wanted to come here for undergrad, but I, you know, there, there were all these other ideas about where I should go. And then when I visited for grad school, there was just no place that had the energy like MIT. Yeah. When I visited different schools, I was really struck by the attitude of the people here. Um, there's just kind of this like people feel like they can do crazy stuff here. Like people feel like they can change the world. Like if there's some really hard problem out there, what I noticed is that in other places, I mean, this isn't true everywhere, obviously, but more so at MIT, it just seemed like people were willing to tackle that kind of stuff. So that's what made me want to come to MIT. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like a place that wasn't about, you know, how many papers do you have or like, you know, what what's the fanciest like name brand project you've done, but it's about, you know, what's what are your off the deep end ideas and how are you going to pursue that? And what are your crazy dreams? And that really appealed to me. And, and it's also terrifying. Like my first few years here, I was like convinced I was like the stupidest person in this program and that it was like an accident that I got in. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> luckily I'd heard of imposter syndrome, so I didn't let that really. <laughs> you can know about imposter syndrome and still yeah. suffer from it. You know, yeah. I, I would say I am very aware of imposter syndrome and it still strikes me at times. And, you know, it's one of those things where if you start realizing, and I, I didn't get to mention this in the, um, the MA, but like stereotype thread, if you start thinking, oh my gosh, are people thinking that I'm looking stupid right now? Cause I'm a woman and they don't usually hear it from, from me. Um, you know, you just have to, you have to catch that inner monologue cause it's distracting and it's actually hurting your ability to communicate and then get back to the science. I was so curious, what motivated you to do the AMA in the first place? Why did you want to come on? Well, I think for all of us, I'm as women in a male-dominated field, we all had some desire to convey our experiences to other people, you know, show them that there are women, show younger women that, you know, we do exist further down the pipeline, and to answer questions people might have that, you know, keep women out of fields like this. I just realized there's not enough examples, and we needed to be out there and be examples for people just to show them that we exist. 
I, I completely agree with you, Neha. I don't usually identify my, I don't draw attention to my gender. And I think I need to be prepared to stand up and, and be vulnerable like that, where I'm saying, you know, oh, by the way, this is also an important aspect of who I am. Yeah. One thing that I feel like motivates me a lot is the fact that so many people told me when I was younger, oh, you can't be a computer scientist because, you know, you're a woman or you can't do math as well as the boys because you're a girl and things like that. And I feel like a lot of my life has just been to create this existence that proves people wrong. Yeah. And so if I'm not going to show myself to the world, then, you know, people won't know that they were actually wrong. And so, <laughs> I don't know if this is the best motivation to do what I do and be very public about it, but this has always been one reason that I have felt motivated to do that. You know, I think there are a lot of smart, well-educated people who had people in their life encouraging them to say like, yeah, you can do this. People who've probably never heard you can't do X because of Y, because of your gender. Can you maybe if you have stories to share or some some examples about what that is like? Because I, I mean, I think for a lot of us, we can only imagine. So for me, I mean, um, there there was a range. So there was very explicit comments like you're not going to be as good at math because you're a girl. The boys are just better um, without really much explanation. And then there are, there are things like, oh, you're you're too pretty to sit in a room and code all day. And people think they mean it as a compliment, but really, you know, you you perceive it as discouraging you from doing the thing you actually want to do. Um, and then there there are more subtle things like I feel like in undergrad, the male students would sometimes try to solve my homework problems for me or say, oh, do you need help setting up your computer? Or, you know, some of it comes in this form of I'm trying to help you, but really it's it's a judgment of what they think you can actually achieve. And I think for me, um, a lot of my earlier education involved overcoming this, you know, realizing that I can actually achieve the same things and I'm not worse at something just because people perceive me a certain way. And I think it's made me better at research in a lot of ways because um, it's made me less afraid of failure because that was just the, the default that I was expecting in the beginning. And it's also, um, I think, not having things go my way and having the world support me from the beginning made me much more uh, willing to take on projects where you don't necessarily have people supporting you the whole way. Um, I was just going to say that I had a very different experience than Jean. I realized that that is unusual, but I had my dad who was kind of, I guess, mentoring me throughout high school. There wasn't any sense of like gendered aspect to my education um, until I got to grad school when some of the people around me started saying things like, well, you only got that fellowship because you're a woman and you're going to get my job because you're a woman. Oh man. And <laughs> so I saying that it wasn't always said in an aggressive way. Mm. It was more sometimes like oh, just like it's the truth. Right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, it's obviously. Just, right. Or, or or you don't have to worry about, you know, perfecting your job talk because, you know, they're going to hire you. So I I don't think I really had kind of the emotional resources built up from beating it off earlier and yeah. it really still hurts. Where where do you all see the future of computer science headed? Astra Taylor has this great book on technology and culture and all that. And she says that software is coming to run our lives. And the programmers who are building the software are the new urban planners. They're making the spaces that we're coming to live in now. And so I think software is becoming not just this thing that's confined to a box that we play with in our kitchen, but you know, part of the fabric of our everyday lives. So how software works, you know, affects the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with everything in the world. So where I see computer science heading is that, you know, it's it's not just this confined thing that's one department in a school, but it's really teaching people how to build things that define how we engage with everything. And so I think that one direction we need to go with curricula then is to teach computer scientists, teach programmers the humanist side of things. So they're thinking about, you know, how are we affecting society and how is this technology going to make things better? Yeah. Um, my view basically is that if you do not try to pick up something about technology today, if you don't try to learn like math and science and try to get sort of like a handle on how the internet works and how computers work, like you're going to be in some serious trouble later on in life. Gene's right. Computer science, I mean, software is eating the world, right? Um, 
And what that really means is it's just becoming integrated with everything, every single discipline. Like, it's funny, I talk to a lot of science PhD students now, and they spend their entire day coding. Like they spend their entire day running analyses or like trying to get something to work. Like some of them actually code more than I do. Like it's ridiculous. (laughs) We just think about coding. (laughs) We abstractly code. They actually code. (laughs) And it's so funny because um, like they would kill to have more fluency in this language, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have a formal education in it. It's something that they had to pick up later. Um, And I think it was only later that they realized how valuable it was. Wow. And are these, these are like chemists, biologists, yeah. what, what kind of disciplines? Neuroscientists, like mm. social scientists, yes. social Everything. scientists, economists, like they're all building models and like yeah. running data analyses yeah. and like. My journalist friends have started yes. coding. Yes. My friends who studied literature in undergrad, they yeah. work at companies now where they also realize coding makes them more val- yeah. valuable. Yeah. Coding is a literacy, but also modeling. I, yeah. I don't want to equate writing a Django web app with critical analytical skills. Like those are different things. Every single field now is being enhanced by computation. And so people have to kind of teach themselves or we have to put up better resources online. Uh, We have to develop friendly communities where there's informal mentorship between people who are a little bit beyond you to you, you know, that you have social relationships with, that people who are like you, people who aren't like you, you know, we we want to really open this up to everyone. Yeah. And speaking like from my research perspective, what I think a lot about is how are we going to build the systems that enable people who don't have PhDs in computer science to build what they need to build. So um, like coming from Google, Google had just like the most amazing set of people who could build these like massive systems to crunch all of this data and like serve the web um, and build all these really cool products. And one thing that drove me to graduate school was, well, everyone shouldn't need to be a distributed systems engineer. Like how are we going to build the APIs and the and the and the products and the infrastructure so that people don't have to learn how all of this works, but instead they can use these as building blocks and tools. Yeah, I would say my research is very similar, but for programming languages. So my PhD thesis is on a programming language for automatically enforcing privacy policies. So how do programmers who aren't spending all of their time trying to dot every I and cross every T, how can we make it easier for them to enforce privacy policies in their programs? And where I wanna go with this is, you know, in the future, we're gonna have all kinds of people, social scientists, uh, biologists, you know, medical researchers, uh, journalists, all kinds of people working with data that's semi-private. And, you know, they could get a lot of useful information out of this data if they didn't have to write policies and reason about the mathematical guarantees about which they might have no formal training at all. So what I think about is how do we get language designs and language implementations to a point that, you know, someone with very little background can pick something up work with private data, make sure it's not leaking information in a very mathematically sound way. Mm. Well, you know, all three of you are doing research that in some way affects access, right? whether it's through education, whether it's through the languages, whether it's through just to software development. Why, why is that important? Because programming is empowering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see it as programming is one of the most empowering things. You know, you can think about something in your head and then you can make it happen by writing a program. I mean, I went into computer science because at some point in time, I realized it was the best lever I had to change the world. Like, it's just the best. It's so far, from what, I've, from what I've seen, it's the best way to magnify whatever it is you're doing. It's the best way to get, to get stuff done. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about, so, you know, uh, every summer uh, for the last 10 or 11 summers, we've been bringing, sorry, um, small plug for MEET. Uh, <laughs> and, um Meet is a program started by MIT alums to essentially have uh, Israelis and Palestinians come together in Jerusalem and uh, learn how to code together. They're high school sophomores, juniors, and seniors, and they build amazing projects together. Um, but, uh, you know, from the beginning, computer science has always been the way by which um, we, uh, the, the, <laughs> the material through which they connected with each other. Um, and we wanted to empower them to be future leaders in the world. And we thought computer science was the best lever. Wow. Could, you could have set the bar, uh, uh, made it a little bit easier, but you went right to Israeli and Palestinian. <laughs> yeah, kids, right. you know? <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We, this... don't, we don't like to beat around the bush at MIT. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. You were, this is that, this is that kind of big picture thinking you all were referring to earlier. You have experience in the, in the private sector in, in a market where today 
someone who, I mean, frankly, they don't even need to have a college degree, right? A great developer, if she's got a great GitHub account with great, you know, has got the chops, she could have a six figure job at a startup yesterday. Um, so in this kind of environment, what is the argument for some bright young mind to get a PhD when she could be making bank and, you know, quote unquote, changing the world at some startup in the Valley? I think that's a really complicated question. <laughs> yeah, I had a very in-depth discussion about this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, and, and actually, so I personally don't intend to stay in academia, and I'm not even sure I intend to keep doing research where these other two um, do intend to stay in it. So, I mean, like one obvious answer is you can't really do research. Like if you want to do pure research, you can't do that necessarily in industry. Um, for me, given that I'm not going to do pure research probably, um, it was more like a personal growth experience. Like it was something that I wanted to do and I wanted to learn for myself. And it's changed the way that I think about problems and um, it's changed the way I think about what I can do. Yeah, I would say that's exactly why I went into it too. Um, I felt like doing a PhD would teach me to work on a problem for, for a very long time, very deeply. Um, and that would be very good for my ability to pick up a problem and figure out how to execute on it and execute on it all the way. Yeah, I guess as for why people might be drawn to academia instead of industry, one thing I really like about it is you get to think about the world you would like to live in instead of the world you actually live in. And so for programming languages, I don't have to think about these are the languages that people are using today. This is the fix that I can give to people next week. I can think about this is what I wish programming looked like. And so I am going to push programming to look that way in 10, 15 years. Well, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> the top voted question in AMA was from some user named ACCAS5 saying, my 11-year-old daughter has recently taken an interest in coding and has asked me to help her find the resources to do it. However, I have zero knowledge in this area and honestly have no idea how to help her or even point her in the right direction. What do you all suggest? Um, et cetera. And this brings me to where do you see the gender gap in computer science trending? And, and does it look maybe a bit more optimistic than it has in the past? Well, I mean, based on the statistics that I've seen most recently, like we're kind of in trouble. Like it peaked in the 80s and <laughs> yeah. things are actually getting worse. Now there might be like more recently an uptick, I'm not even sure, given the number of programs, the amount of encouragement that's out there. But long-term, the trend is bad, which is why I think a lot of people really want to fix that and really want to do something about it. I read that the number of women entering computer science was growing until about 1984. And people think one reason for that is because that's the year personal computers became very prevalent in people's mm -hmm. homes. And because of the way gender dynamics are set up with sons and daughters, you know, the sons got more opportunities to play with personal computers and women started getting shut out of mm -hmm. programming and or not science. encouraged perhaps yeah. as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and um, I think it, it's also, it's gone like kind of up and down depending on the economy and like how like the internet, internet startups are doing. Um, but I'm actually really worried. Like personally, I'm, I'm concerned. Like I think that we need to, we need to take some serious change. And I think it starts pretty early on. Like it starts early on in terms of like making sure you're not doing these things, which cause implicit bias like there's a lot of different studies out there about ways that you can teach and ways you can act in the classroom. Yeah. Um, and then, and then from there it goes into college where I think we really need to think very carefully about the computer science curriculum. I'm like, I talk about this all the time. CMU Carnegie Mellon university did something amazing in the nineties. Uh, they had a really dismal ratio of women graduating from their computer science program. And it was especially bad because a decent chunk entered, but, very, very few graduated. And so they really like they embarked on this multi-year study to really see what was going on. And they ended up altering their curriculum slightly, not in a way where they were actually teaching different topics, but sort of they changed the order of the topics. Like they were just very, they're very deliberate about it. And they improved um, the numbers dramatically. And I, I think that's an example of what we should be doing is we should be like looking at our industries and our schools and we should be asking questions and very scientifically examining what's happening and then making small changes to make it better. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's not like we don't know. But and also the, the things you're talking about at the in the way that you teach, I actually so I, I've been teaching computer architecture for a while and I started introducing I used to give them these these tests that were kind of high stakes. So I I read about how you can kind of prime people 
to either do very well or very poorly, just just based on what you say in the first few minutes before you hand them this test. Um, and so uh, I became known for giving these little spiels where I was actually just trying to kind of get them thinking about all the things that uh, are important to them, that that make them worthy as people. And that this, <laughs> this test was only a test on like, cues <laughs> stacks <laughs> but yeah i mean there's there's studies that say that like you can get people to write down you know like what they care about at the beginning of school year and have significant impact on tests and these are not technological interventions yeah you know but but they're important i think part of this is um just teaching the introductory classes in a way uh, in college in a way that's welcoming to everyone and not just people who have been programming since five and have certain ideas about what they like about computers there's this misconception out there and like people actually like they support it but it's absolutely not true there's this misconception that you needed to have like started hacking on a computer when you were like 10 years old (laughs) and if you didn't like do that if you weren't like taking your computer apart and installing linux and like upgrading the like drivers and playing video games then you're just you start behind and that is just absolutely not true at all especially in today's world where there's just so many different kinds of software and so many different ways to influence technology. One of the smartest and, and best programmers I ever met um, didn't even start programming until her second year of college. And she was amazing. And it's just, it, it really yeah. makes, it's not important at all. And it really sucks that there's this like misconception out there that you have to have started really early or you're behind. Yeah. And there's, there are certain ideas about also what, what a good programmer looks like, you know, in unlocking the clubhouse, they talk about the boy genius icon, right? Mm. People, people imagine a good programmer, they imagine this boy, probably a white boy, who, you know, looks a certain way, and probably he's very good at computers. And also, you know, this extends not just to programming, but to all kinds of other things, right? Investors have said, you know, I'll invest in people who look like Mark Zuckerberg, right? Yeah. Um, So I think um, a lot of this involves questioning our assumptions about what success looks like in a lot of these different fields. And recently, I wrote an essay with a friend, Ari Rabkin, about how this even extends to the programming languages people use. So this essay was about how uh, programming languages are social construct and how sometimes what we think is technical objective bias, you know, C is just a better language than Ruby. It's it's more manly or something like that actually has a lot of social bias built into it. And so we should really question, you know, where our assumptions about how things work are coming from and, you know, how we can change that to be more inclusive. After the break, Elena, Jean, and Neha will be discussing why we should care about diversity in STEM, how coding isn't the hurdle you may believe it to be, and their experience answering your questions during their AMA on r slash IMA. At this point, I hope some of you might be thinking about how you need a website, right? Well, if you are, you should seriously consider building one on Squarespace. Their templates not only fit the aesthetic you're looking for, but their easy-to-use platform will fit all of your needs. The drag-and-drop interface is very easy to use, and seriously, if you're technically savvy enough to download a podcast, you can build a website with Squarespace. Also, if any of you are avid Squarespace users, you should check out the Squarespace subreddit at squarespace.reddit.com. If you're a beginner, don't be shy. Ask a question there, and if you're more knowledgeable, maybe help someone out. Gain some of that sweet, sweet karma. Squarespace sites start at only $8 a month. For a free trial with no credit card required, just head over to squarespace.com. When you like what you see, use the offer code UPVOTED and get 10% off. You'll be getting a great deal, and you'll be supporting this podcast and Reddit. That's squarespace.com, offer code U-P-V-O-T-E-D. Now, back to the discussion on STEM. And I think I know the answer to this, but why, why is this so important? Why should we care as a society about this, right? We have far more women in nursing. My sister's a nurse, and, yeah. and she would love it if there were more men in nursing because you mm-hmm. have to do a lot of heavy lifting, physical labor stuff, and you know it would be helpful if men who tend to be larger were more involved, right? Why is this an important issue, but that isn't? And I'm, I'm, I'm just putting this is, the, this is the common internet thing that I see. I'm not, totally. expressing, not okay. expressing my views. Yeah, I know. That's a really good question. It's something that I think probably all three of us have thought about a lot. Uh, one thing is that, you know, I think the more diverse your teams are, the fewer blind spots you have, right? So for me personally, how I try to get better at things is I try to reduce the number of blind spots, right? Like, so what are my assumptions that I'm making that I'm not aware of? And that might come back and bite me later. I think one important thing is I always try in my life to get a diverse set of opinions on 
big projects I do or, you know, big things I'm trying to write just to make sure that I'm not missing a big part of the picture. And recently there, there have been all these articles about how teams with any women on them at all do better. And I, I didn't actually read about the reasons why, but you know. it's something to do with the fact that uh, I mean, there's group intelligence and there's individual intelligence. Group intelligence is very much a function of the social intelligence of the mm, individuals, okay. rather than their their kind of like pure. I don't know. Not that I mean, all of the all of these measures of intelligence to me are a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so I actually don't like this argument. <laughs> so this is a place where Gene and I kind of disagree. Um, I I. It, I think there have been studies that have shown that like a diverse team performs better than a not diverse team. But honestly, I just think it's about fairness. I know people think that there's a lack of interest in math or more analytical fields in women. And I don't think there is at all. I think there are a lot of women who would do really well in these fields and who are really interested, but get discouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see it as a moral imperative to fix that, to stop discouraging women from a field that's awesome because they could be doing really well in it. And um, I, I think, you know what, I think the same thing applies to nursing. I don't think that we should have this feeling out there that nursing is like a feminine job. I think men should be in nursing if they want to be in nursing. And we should look at what we as a society are doing to discourage that and fix it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that if there was also evidence that many men were being discouraged from nursing, that people should be. I mean, I think be, they are. Yeah. I think it's people like should be doing weird. something about it. And honestly, it's just not my fight. Like, yeah. I'm not in nursing. I'm in computer science, and so this is what I look at. But yeah, I think it's a problem. I, I think this uh, points to a, a bigger trend, though, of where it becomes more and more socially acceptable for women to kind of like take on what are thought of traditionally as male characteristics. Yeah. Like, um, but we don't talk about the reverse. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, there's some great posters or whatever that are pretty old, you know, that I, I ran into in the women's and gender studies department way back. And, you know, they were all about, it's, it's a two way street. Yeah. It's about yeah. freeing up men to take on jobs, um, that they, that are stereotypically female or, or express all the aspects of human life that are for whatever reason, you know, labeled. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it, that is actually crucial to fixing the problem of diversity in computer science is recognizing that everyone kind of suffers under the gender dynamics we have to deal with and the stereotypes out there. And part of fixing computer science is making it more inclusive for everyone, not just people who are being, who are not being included right now, but making everyone feel more comfortable and productive. Yeah. Yeah. And back to the, um, so what Neha was saying before about how there are many women who want to be in computer science or programming who can't, there is a lot of evidence that women are being driven out of the field. There was a recent really good LA Times op-ed that said that, um, you know, even though there aren't very high numbers already of women graduating from college with degrees in computer science, many more of them are leaving after five, 10 years um, in the industry and they cite harassment or being demeaned, being condescended to and just general hostile environment. Yeah. As- and people don't seem to realize that. They think that it's just an early part of the pipeline yeah, problem, it's but it's not. It's pipeline. like everywhere in the pipeline. It's important to know that. Well, I'm very self-conscious of the fact that I did leave uh, one environment for another, mm-hmm. you know, and they are vastly different environments. Mm-hmm. And But I can't generalize and, I, you know, like I don't want to, like, you know, I guess I'm self-conscious of the fact that you know, from like a more male dominated part of computer science to a more like equal part. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that too. But, you know, I, I, I guess it's I think sometimes your reasons for switching and like why something's not working can be very, very subtle and subconscious. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, um, I'm happy with where I am now, but I just wonder, you know, uh, I've spent time in different research groups in robotics and some were amazing and some weren't. And I'm still kind of very interested in, in what really makes that switch, you know, when, when everyone feels empowered. Hmm. And I think one thing that um, makes people perceive the problem as being less bad than it is, is that many of the women who end up staying are the ones lucky enough to have found the good environments. So I'll talk to women sometimes about, you know, how people didn't think I should do science and all this other stuff. And they'll say, wow, I've never heard of that at all. And I think about it. I think it's not because not very many women hear this who are interested in science. I think it's all the ones who are interested in STEM fields who hear this actually stop doing it. Um, So that's something we should be aware of as well. 
you ask nine out of 10 women scientists, you know, did they hear these negative thoughts? Yeah. It, it, it'll be <laughs> yeah. overrepresented the people who didn't. Yeah. Um, though going back to something uh, you had said about um, uh, how, uh, you know, if you weren't changing your, you know, booting up Linux on your, your laptop when you were 10, it's, it's all gone. Um, I did the women tech, women's technology program here when I was a sophomore in high school. And one of the, th one of the only things I remember from it was one of the TAs saying, look, when you get here to MIT, when you're a freshman or wherever, you know, wherever you go, um, there are going to be guys who know how to change everything about, you know, like their, 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 their desk space or whatever. And you're going to have nothing, you, you'll know about this other, this form of math that I'm teaching you. And they are both equally important to computer science and don't ever let someone That's kind of awesome that this person yeah. told you that. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. What what do you say to people who view programming as as magic and had just have no idea how to start learning? Sometimes I've just sat down with someone, opened up a terminal with Python on it, and just told them to start typing things because then I, I think that's the best way to explain it. Sometimes you know, you say okay, just just type like print hello, type one plus three. You know, they see it's kind of like a really fancy calculator, and then you just you know give them more stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, I think like math is kind of an important place to start to just sort of form the kind of thinking that's going to help you. Um, thinking in terms of abstraction and um, substitution and sort of various things like that. But to be 100% honest, like we don't go up to people like nuclear physicists and say, oh, how can I be, you know, like, why isn't everyone a nuclear physicist? Like some things are kind of hard, you know, <laughs> and, and, and like, it would be really cool. I think people can learn, like, I think, I don't think everyone should learn how to program. I mean, I think people should become fluent in technology, but I don't necessarily think that everyone needs to learn how to program. I agree. I, I think for me, I view programming as a superpower the same way I view writing as a superpower or basic math skills or even like being able to draw what's in your head to convey, a, you know, a visual image to someone. I think coding is, is no different. And so I completely agree with Elena that this black box magic idea of what coding is should be lifted for, I think, as many people as possible. But I also agree with Neha that not everyone needs to become, you know, a very fluent programmer. Well, I know at least anecdotally, um, and even for myself, HTML was my gateway when I was the nerd taking apart my computer. Oh, me, uh, me too. <laughs> you know, and it was really cool to see like, okay, this thing on the screen, it was some GeoCities page, right? Oh yeah, yeah, me too. I had it, an Angel Fire one too. Yes. <laughs> nice. And the first time you change the background color mm -hmm. and then you mess with blink tags or whatever, like yeah. it, it's like, wow, I made a thing that millions of people well, tens of, or like probably two people can <laughs> see. Yeah. That my mom will see. Yeah. Yeah. I used to meet people in chat rooms just to send them to my, my Tamagotchi website. Yes. <laughs> um, once someone has been hooked, it's this understanding that like, I don't know how to do this thing. I, I figured it out. And I also gave myself the skills to go discover more things. Cause like, I mean, how do we learn all this stuff? We spend time Googling for answers and stack overflow and all these, like, <laughs> It's it's like you have this general sense of a thing you want to do. You're not really sure how to do it. You try a bunch of stuff. You're frustrated as all hell. You do some Googling. You copy paste. Hopefully you'll learn some stuff too. Uh, and then it works and it feels – it's like this endorphin rush. And mm -hmm. and you didn't need to spend any money. You know, It's just some time in a screen. <laughs> and I really do hope that even if people who are listening to you are thinking like there is no way in hell I'm ever going to be a PhD in CS at MIT – that they still think, all right, let me at least just get a taste. Let me let me try something. I think if you have an interest, like absolutely, it's there's so many resources out there right now too. Yeah. Like there's just like there's so many learn to code websites that try to start from the very beginning. And I'm really impressed. One thing I don't think there's enough of out there is sort of explaining how bigger systems work from a high level. Like, I'm not sure that there's a lot out there that tells you how apps work on your phone, as an example. Like, that's probably... Oh, yeah. That's that's, that's probably the way that a lot of people come into contact with most of, like, really cool computing stuff these days is, like, mm -hmm. they install an app on their phone. And do they know how that works? Like, what, like, do they think Google lives inside their phone? Like, like how do you give, give people, like, an understanding of how these bigger systems work? Right. I mean, the mental model there is, yeah. is exactly what you want to teach them. Yeah. Because they, they may not understand the difference between Python and SQL or something like that. But Yeah. And they don't need to understand no, the difference no. between Python. But they should know that, like, their phone has certain amounts of personal information about them on there. And they should 
kind of understand what it means when they give like an application access to it, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's very easy for anyone uh, to make their own website or a very simple project. And I think, you know, that that can take a day or a weekend for, for many people and, you know, people should try it. Yeah. It's just so funny how like over time that kind of gateway gateway language has changed um, or, or that there's different paths to kind of uh, thinking about bigger systems. HTML being one of them. Um, for me, it was, uh, it was MATLAB. <laughs> but uh, whatever your coding, pro- your starting language of choice is, whether it's your phone or, you know, setting up web pages or MATLAB. I think that some people have this idea that they need to start programming a certain way. Like they need to write a boring program to start because that's like the hazing ritual or something mm-hmm. like that. But I think that's not true at all. I think, you know, for people who are trying to learn to code, um, they should really imagine you know, a pretty small project that they really want to do and then figure out how to do that. And not get shamed about the fact that it's the wrong language yeah, or it's the wrong yeah. project yeah. or it's not the cool thing to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so ironic that we're talking about aspects of computer science that aren't cool, yeah. right? I, know. I mean, <laughs> I know, it's so ridiculous. When I hear somebody bashing on a language, it's just like, come on, guys, we're all nerds. Like, <laughs> like what are you trying to do here? <laughs> well, so, so to that end, um, for people listening who, let's say, who are already in the field in some way, shape, or form, what can they do to help make it live up to its fullest potential? I think whenever someone feels the urge to bash some part of the field or to uh, make a judgment call about someone, they should think about uh, what part of their opinion is technical and what part might come from other places. Um, and I think this can really help make uh, tech more inclusive. I think people like should stop trying to show off all the time. Like there's this culture of like pretending that, you know, a bunch of stuff and it's really harmful. Like I think people should admit what they don't know. I think if we all talked about what we don't know and we don't understand all the time, things would get like so much better. People would, would learn be, faster. We'd and, like, be talking all the time. Yeah. It's kind of, I'm, I'm working, I see, I've been trying to do some, some kind of computational journalist kind of stuff with uh, a professor who I took his Middle Eastern politics and policy class at oh, the Kennedy wow. School because it's like, we're required to make a, do a minor that's yep. like not yep. related at all <laughs> to our thesis. This was not related. Um, and, uh, and I just, I'm wading into this total other area of CS that I really haven't spent any time in before. And, you know, (laughs) it just gives you uh, a real appreciation for the breadth of what falls into this field. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So I am, I'm being reacquainted every day with all the things I do not yet know. Not yet. I mean, I think that's key. Not yet. Right. Like everybody starts out new like nobody is born like knowing how to program and set up a database and like run a web server like everyone starts out not knowing how to do these things and it doesn't matter what age you are when you decide you want to learn or what gender you are or whatever like you should be welcome into learning yeah there's that great adventure time quote about uh sucking is the first step to being sort of good at something (laughs) yeah Yeah, yeah. I I prefer with not go with not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Do that's and this is uh, I I can say this is it. It's very heartening to hear from uh, three MIT PhDs like that. (laughs) If 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 you all can feel that way, there is hope for the rest of us. You all are really seeing and pushing the boundaries of what we understand about CS. Um, What? And I know this is really unfair, but is there like a TLDR of <laughs> your research or even just something really surprising that you found that could give us some, some I guess, perspective into areas of, of research that we just otherwise would, would just not know about? Oh, boy. Okay. I have one, but it's kind of, it's kind of scary. So I'm kind <laughs> of amazed that like the software we have today actually works. Um, (laughs) Like it's kind of a miracle that like things aren't failing all over the place and things are catching on fire. And like, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of impressed that we are actually able to make progress and rely on software because the, the way we write it today is just like such a mess. Like the bugs that we have and like all of the weird race conditions and like all of these, like there's so much like crappy code out there, you know? And, (laughs) and, and I mean, it's just, I, I'm just in awe of the fact that we are able to actually get stuff done. 
I feel exactly the same way. Which is, <laughs> I, I think we work on this similar problem from different perspectives. So for me, my my solution is we just really need better languages and better tools for you know making sure that that there is more reason going on <laughs> in this whole situation. Yeah. Um. But but I think some really cool stuff is happening in my field, for instance, to characterize the mathematical guarantees that software can give us. Yeah. Well, so there's that, but it's going to take a while. Um, <laughs> yes. but, but then there's this whole other uh, area of software engineering slash programming languages research that's about treating software like biological systems that just have like a bunch of stuff going on. And, you know, there's just some redundancy and we don't really know what's going on and stuff can fail, but it still works. And, and you know, thinking about it that way instead, hmm. um, which might be what it comes comes to mm-hmm. biological <laughs> systems certainly i'm surprised we don't just kind of yeah, implode yeah. Uh, <laughs> randomly. Uh, um yeah that's a nice metaphor yeah i'm trying to think about um what my uh human computer interaction um <laughs> thing, i guess I, I spend most of my time at the intersection of human computer interaction and education specifically and i guess you know what i <laughs> kind of have the opposite uh, take it in terms of uh, when I was wor- I was working at Microsoft Research this summer, and um, we were building some new, you know, like because we have new technology, it really prompts you to question the way that we've been teaching, and is there a better way? I mean, it's, it's always the, that, the question you ask when you have a new tool. <laughs> um, and um, and we were doing our literature searches on what had been done before, and it's like, oh man, like people have been from the very beginning have been using computer the first time that like I feel like the first time a computer scientist is like, look, I've got a personal computer I've got this computer. They immediately turned around to how can I teach somebody better with this? Um so I would say, you know, it's a hard problem and we're still working at, you know, yeah. stay tuned. <laughs> so- and, and just to say something a little bit more positive. <laughs> like, instead of like all the software is about to crumble out from beneath us. Um I, I think like I mean, cloud computing is almost a cliche these days, but it's it's also a very powerful concept. Um, like people do really care a lot about making our data and our computation fault tolerant, um, scalable, available all over the world. And it's enabling a lot of functionality. And And what's also cool is it's enabling people who might not necessarily have known how to build stuff or wanted to run their own server to be able to just like plug these tools in. And so they can focus on the domain specific thing they're building. Like they can focus on their app, they can focus on their like problem they're trying to solve and they don't have to focus as much on the software stack underneath it. And so I love things like that because it just enables people, it enables all these people to do something cool. People that I don't even know exist could use technology I make to do something really cool. So um, I guess a lot of what people in my field think about is if we had a lot more compute power, how could we make software more correct and how can we make programming easier? And so the good news is people have been thinking about this for a long time. So by the time we have that amount of compute power, we're going to have more correct software and easier programming languages. That's very optimistic. All right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe everything won't like die a horrible death underneath us and yeah. like, cause the world to collapse. Yeah, we just hopefully. need more compute cycles. <laughs> <laughs> so, robot overlords, what are the odds? Oh, yeah. Oh, very I low. look forward to it. I oh mean, everything God. is just crumbling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely make anything work these days. Like, I know. Like, I mean, like, we're not going to develop robots who actually have the capabilities of, like, taking over. It's hard enough to write good software. That's my opinion. I'm not worried. I mean, yeah, actually, I mean, I've always taken that as just a complete joke. Does no, anyone people, think people, people actually think that? Yeah. 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 Elon Musk. In computer uh, science, that's a big yeah. joke, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this gets back to the magic part. If you oh, don't yeah. realize, it looks like magic. Yes, that's right. the problem. So I'll tell you a little, little story about. Uh, the fact that there's gonna be no robot overlords. Um, when I, <laughs> yeah, I when I, <laughs> when I was in in middle school, um, my dad pointed out the AI lab. It was before CSAIL, so it was the AI lab, and they put up. Um, Roddy Brooks had his robots uh, robotic group, and um, Kismet was put up. And they had this little gallery of the robots and like who was working on them. Cynthia Brazil, who is now a professor at the Media Lab, um, was making this social robot, and it would respond to you. They were that you 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 were supposedly supposed to be able to like approach it, and it would kind of it would it would like lean in. It was doing all these kinds of things that we naturally do with each other mm-hmm. as like uh, signaling to indicate its needs, and it had like drives for like for more uh, interaction or less. Anyway, so. I could, I was like, oh my God, this, 
the student has like invented life. Like, <laughs> I was just so excited as so we drove all the way, like 12, you know, 12 yeah. hours oh to MIT. And she showed me the robot. Um, she was very kind. And I'll always remember when people are asking me for my time, I remember that she gave me a little bit of hers and how much a difference that made. Um, but she, she showed me the robot. She said, well, half its brain is like powered down right now. It's kind of, you know, she was like finishing up. Um, but, uh, she was explaining how it worked. And finally I understand that I understood that it was not magic. (laughs) It was this very basic, it was a very good mimicry of life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I actually was (laughs) Like it was a real kind of watershed moment for me um, because, you know, I mean, I was in middle school, so I mean, it's not, it's kind of, I'm laughing at my former self, former self now, but like if people understood the underlying yeah. mechanisms, they would not be afraid. Yeah. I'm actually more concerned about the way that like <laughs> openness and technology, like the, like technology is changing so fast. How has Facebook and Twitter changed the way that we interact with each other? Like as human beings and as friends, like how is having a mobile phone changed the way that people are like having relationships? It's like, that's the kind of stuff that I worry more about because the technology is just going crazy. Everything's happening really, really fast and things are getting picked up and there's no sort of way to think of, to like manage that from the top. Instead, we have to react to it. Yeah. I feel very heartened though by this growing body of technology criticism that's arising to help us reflect on this more. Yeah. There's even apps to help you reflect. <laughs> yeah, apps to help you control your apps. So yeah, I feel like we're more a slave to our apps and our phones than we are to some robot overload. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. that is absolutely... I'm more scared of like notifications than I am. Yeah. Of, like, oh yeah, I have overloads. no notifications on. My phone actually is like broken up, but I, it doesn't even work anymore. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. You're lucky. Yeah, I mean, but there are actually, and this is where, sorry to plug HCI again, but you know, <laughs> I think it is one of the less visible fields to a certain extent, even though everyone interacts with internet. <laughs> faces. Um, but one of the things that, uh, you know, you look at human-centered design uh, engineering out at uh, University of Washington, and they're thinking about, you know, behavior, how every, many people want to change their behavior. And, you know, it's part of computer science, in a sense, to think about how these devices are affecting people and how we can make, make that a positive effect rather than a negative one. Um, so, uh, yeah. Kudos to interdisciplinary uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, projects like that. I guess another thing is I feel like we should be very scared of relying on algorithms. So mm-hmm. I started reading this very interesting book called The Fires by this man named Joe Flood. And it's about how in the 60s and 70s, the poorest neighborhoods of New York burned down. Because so and people wondered how this could be, you know, so what ended up happening was the poorest people in New York all got driven out of the city because they had no neighborhoods to live in anymore. And how this happened under a liberal government. Um, was that the government had trusted a brand corporation to allocate their fire and other resources. And so what happened was these neighborhoods got more and more run down. And when fire started, the they didn't have fire departments close by enough to uh, fight the fires. And so just like the whole neighborhood would end up burning down. And the lesson to learn here is that, you know, this happened because they trusted the algorithm, which was supposed to be neutral and fair mm-hmm. and all that. But mm-hmm. really, like, you know, they should have questioned those assumptions about how fair and how mm-hmm. how how good they were really being. So, yeah, I think it's very, you know, that's another kind of robot overlord we should be really worried about. The algorithm. The algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> well, you look at the difference. This comes up. Uh, uh, Zeynep Tefeci uh, does a lot of work on how the algorithms um, identify, like, in, in our social, so Facebook versus Twitter. Yeah. You know, she'll yeah. she'll often take screen cap, uh, captures of what's quote unquote trending on Facebook mm-hmm. and what's trending on, on Twitter because they have separate algorithms. Yeah. And you see how your view of the world is entirely shaped by that. Oh, yeah. The filter bubble. That's really scary. <laughs> yeah, that is terrifying, actually. I, I think like people have done experiments with this, like the level of homophily is really frightening. Like you will just see what you like to see reflected back to you. Over yeah. And over your and over your own personal echo chamber. Yeah. 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 I was talking with a friend the other day about how I will do searches on Google in my regular browser and then in a private browser <laughs> just to make sure I'm not missing out on anything. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these things, unfortunately don't sound like very good plots for dystopian Hollywood films. Yeah. <laughs> no, the just, algorithm. Yeah. You are. <laughs> I think the filter bubble could 
It you could, could be really uh, some yeah. kind of Truman Show. We could work on that. We, yeah. <laughs> we can workshop that. Okay. An algorithms visual data person to like visualize the algorithm. Yeah. You know, like the way they did the black hole in Interstellar. Yeah. And the then... problem with mm. all these really scary things is that they're very abstract, right? You yeah. can't, you know, your your mobile phone looks like some harmless thing, but really, it's <laughs> taking over your life. No one believes that. It's so small. It's getting smaller. <laughs> all the photos of everyone staring at their phones instead of each other might do it. Yeah. yeah. You know, speaking of uh, technology technology and our lives. I just wanted to get your download on what it was like doing the Reddit AMA that you did. Oh, it was amazing. It, it was, was really, really cool. It was a real adrenaline rush. Yeah. I mean, I think like for me personally, like, I mean, I, I like Reddit a lot, but I knew that we were going to get a wide variety of comments and questions. Like I was prepared for the worst. Um, and so I was actually like very pleasantly surprised by how awesome the questions were um, and how interesting the conversations were. Like yeah. a lot of people came in to answer questions for us and they were really <laughs> cool. Like they were really good at it. Um, also, uh, yeah, I just, I thought it was an amazing experience and we wrote an article about it, which highlighted some of the more negative things just to point out that they still exist. But overall it was super cool. Oh, and now I remember what I wanted to say. I think I thought going into it that the Reddit community who would respond to us would be like hacker news or programmers or something. And I was just amazed at the diversity of people who were interested. That was really surprising to me and mm -hmm. really great was to get that kind of like wide feedback. Same here. Yeah, it was great to know that other people were had things to say about the experience of being in computer science or being a woman in computer science and that, you know, people outside of that were even interested in hearing what that was like. Uh, yeah, I, I, the one question that stuck out to me was the high school teacher in England who was like, you know, I want to have more girls in my class. What should I do? You know, and I mean, not necessarily that we're the world expert on that because there's people who actually study com yeah. computer science education, um, you know, and education in general. But like, um, it's just, it was really heartening to see the level of, um, desire to, to be better, to be male allies, to be better teachers. Um, yeah, it was yeah. just... And Wonderful. then some really interesting unexpected topics came up, like the topic of privilege, for instance. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, the three of us were asked to talk about our backgrounds. And it was pointed out that all of us had parents who really emphasized education from a young age and how this was a dimension of privilege. Yeah. Each of us had our own areas that I think we felt comfortable speaking about. And it was really nice to have three of us because we were able to kind of divide up the work. And, and yeah. um, so that was really fun. Um Oh, one thing that was really hard for me was like, I would go back and keep looking at it. Like after we'd done it, you know, we sort of set like this time limit of a few hours and there were still questions coming in. <laughs> and like, I really, they, they were, I just, I really wanted to answer them, but I felt like I shouldn't, I don't know. But it was yeah. just like, I was like, wow, all these people, they're like, oh, I know I'm really late, but I have this question. I have this question. I have this question. And yeah, it was kind of heartbreaking actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so one thing is in my normal life, I love being asked questions. And so <laughs> this Reddit AMA was just like everything I want condensed into a very short <laughs> time. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, I, I had to cut myself off after a while because I knew I was just going to keep answering the questions forever. Yeah. I, I also thought it was really cool how we got to combine talking about diversity in computer science with our respective research areas. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm glad it wasn't just like one or the other. It was great that there were questions on both. Yeah. And then there was that question that I spent all this time, like trying to explain what I thought was the next big thing in HCI. And then like the, the tagline was, oh, actually, I didn't really want to know. Will you go out with me? And I was like, oh, <laughs> are you serious? Yeah. Oh my God. I, didn't I was see so, that one. I was just like, you know, so it's not like it was all warm and fuzzy. Oh, no. it was just like <laughs> well, if it is, if it is any consolation, I am sure there were still hundreds of thousands of people who saw your comment and got value out of it. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also like, I'm surprised there wasn't a lot more blatant misogyny. Like you hear about things like Gamergate yeah. um, and what happens to people like Anita Sarkeesian. And um, she just posted something today that showed like the tweets she gets on Twitter. Um, like, and it was shocking and like, you just, you keep scrolling through all of these like horrible, like mean misogynistic comments. And I was really scared that was going to happen. And it didn't. And that was cool that yeah. it didn't. I was really happy that it didn't. I'm, I'm really glad it didn't. And in fact, I one of the reasons I was curious about doing an AMA is because I wanted a proof of concept that, you know, we could publicly be women in computer science and not be like, you know, have yeah. death 
threat sent to I, our yeah. emails or something like I, that. I did not get a single negative email, which apparently yeah. is unusual. Yeah. Like, I just got all these positive emails of people being really happy and really excited. Same here. And very important people emailed me, <laughs> all, all three of us, uh, saying, you know, you know, we think this is really important, this issue of diversity in STEM, and thank you for talking about it. And I think so, something that I've thought about for a while is that I've been writing publicly online about gender issues for years now. And usually people are very positive. And this is how I've come to understand that, you know, many men are interested in this topic, but they feel like they're walking on, on eggshells, for instance. And um, I'm glad that, you know, we we were able to write about this at a larger scale without having negative feedback. Because one thing I was wondering was, you know, is it just because no one reads what I write that, <laughs> that I'm not getting I mean, death threats? But also, I mean, we are really lucky. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to sort of examine what went on here as compared to what goes on in other situations, because we, I, I had a tremendously positive experience. Yeah, I think that we have a lot of privilege from being at MIT and also interacting with other people who are highly educated and, you know, aren't the kinds of people who normally, you know, yeah. troll on the Internet. Awesome. Well, I, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, if there's anything else you all want to talk about, I'm happy to, too. But this is great. I think we, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy with what we've been able to discuss. Yeah. I hope everyone listening realizes the importance of STEM, as well as the importance of not teaching our younger generation that they are limited or should fit inside a certain predestined mold. Elena, Neha, and Jean bring such an awesome perspective, and it's really important that we make STEM a more inclusive field. Before I leave you with my final thoughts from this episode, we have some more smooth jazz and one last word from our sponsors. NatureBox is a nutritionist-approved shipment of snacks with zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners, no trans fats, and no high-fructose corn syrup. Even with all those zeros, this stuff actually tastes really good. I mentioned these sriracha roasted cashews earlier, and seriously, I really do love them. Even Electric Ferret on Reddit says, and I'm paraphrasing here, NatureBox's shit is delicious. NatureBox is also great for travelers. Since I'm traveling two weeks out of every month, it can be easy to spend frivolously at airports or eat junk food. But with NatureBox, it's easy, enjoyable, and convenient to stay healthy. You can get your first NatureBox for free right now at naturebox.com slash upvoted. Go ahead. That's N-A-T-U-R-E-B-O-X dot com slash upvoted. I'm grateful those three women took the time out to speak with me on top of the time they put into the Reddit AMA that got this all started. We still have a lot of work to do to increase diversity in STEM. I should disclose that I'm on the board of advisors for Black Girls Code and DonorsChoose.org. This is something I actively campaign and fundraise for. This isn't about checking boxes. It's about making sure that this new world we're building with science, technology, engineering, and math is as awesome as possible. It will never live up to its full potential unless we benefit from everyone's talents, experiences, and perspectives. Whether it's a career that takes you into academia or into the land of startups, which, by the way, we are hiring at Reddit, it's empowering. This new world is going to be created by technologists, and we need to have as many great people as possible building that new technology. This is complicated, and it's not going to be easy, and it needs to change at every step of the way in education. You heard so many stories from these three women in particular, but there are many, many more. And even what you're doing behind your computer makes a difference, right? Even the keystrokes, even the upvotes and downvotes you give have an impact. The huge advantage we have with these amazing communication platforms is that we can speak freely and openly. And the vast majority of the time, people handle that really well. And it's great. And it's empowering. And it's enlightening. But sometimes it's not. With great power comes great responsibility. I know that in my entire professional career, I have walked into every single room, never wondering for a second whether or not someone would take me less seriously simply because of my gender. It's kind of a mind job, right? Like the entire time, any time I can walk into any room and know that no one's going to second guess me just because I happen to be a dude. Actually, like so many things in life, this can be summed up well with a Simpsons quote. It's awful being a kid. No one listens to you. It's rotten being old. No one listens to you. I'm a white male, age 18 to 49. 
Everyone listens to me, no matter how dumb my suggestions are. And if you don't remember that clip, Homer is saying this as he grabs a can of nuts and gum. Well, my fellow white males aged 18 to 49, let's try to do a little better than Homer Simpson, shall we? You can follow Elena Glassman on Twitter at Robotic Wrestler, spelled just as it should be, R-O-B-O-T-I-C-W-R-E-S-T-L-E-R, Jean Yang at J-E-A-N-Q-A-S-A-U-R, and Neha Narula at Neha, N-E-H-A. Links to their AMA are included in this episode's show notes, and you can reach me, as always, on the Twitters at Alexis Ohanian, and, of course, on our very own subreddit, r slash upvoted or upvoted.reddit.com. Please, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Upvoted on iTunes, leave us a review, or you can follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Overcast. Also RSS, because why not? If you happen to be one of those amazing people who is a gilded Redditor, first, thank you for supporting Reddit with your Reddit gold. Second, you'll be getting early access to every episode of Upvoted. So instead of waiting until Thursday, you can get it every Wednesday. Just head on over to the lounge at reddit.com slash r slash lounge or lounge.reddit.com for your early access. Please don't share, but it's our way of saying thank you for helping make all of this possible. We've been so grateful for all the great feedback we've gotten over at the upvoted Reddit. You should come join us there if you haven't already. Go ahead and subscribe. We actually just got a beautiful redesign to the upvoted subreddit. So if nothing else, come on over there and take a look. That is thanks to an amazing Redditor named Algy12, whose name I misspelled in the thank you post. I'm really sorry, Algy12. But check it out and let me know what you think. As always, we're all standing by to hear what you think in the comments after every episode. And I say on behalf of the entire team, Alex, Francis, Michael, and myself, we could not do this without you. So thank you. Thanks to all of you, we are now on our way to a quarter of a million downloads. Wow. Seriously, thank you. Let's do this again next week on Upvoted by Reddit. Reddit.